Again, good morning. The song is, I mean, I guess I picked it, so I, I knew I was preaching, so I, I guess it is obviously appropriate to what I'm preaching today, but um, it is very appropriate to what I'm preaching today, um, which is the lordship of Christ and the everyday stuff of life. So we want to um, Christ to open up his word for us, even as I attempt uh, to do uh, that in, a, in some way uh, by his strength this morning, until every heart confesses that Christ is Lord. Um, so, starting out, I, I am not the most avid Star Wars fan. Um, ironically, my, my dad was the first one to show me the Star Wars movies, and it's Father's Day. I didn't plan that, but, uh, but there is a line from one of the more recent um, iterations of Star Wars, Episode 7, The Force Awakens, that came out just in 2015, that really st- struck me and stuck with me. So if you're not familiar with the new storyline, no worries. Um, Ray is the new protagonist in the recent sequels. She's speaking with Han Solo, who you might be familiar with from the original storyline. And she asks this really incredulous question. The Jedi were real? To which Han responds, I used to wonder that myself. Thought it was a bunch of mumbo-jumbo magical power holding together good, evil, the dark side and the light. Crazy thing is, it's it's true. The Force, the Jedi, all of it, it's all true. Now these lines are from a science fiction movie. And I want to stress the fact that the Force, Jedi, all that whole universe really is fiction. I don't want to blur the lines between sci-fi and reality. But let's take the principles from these lines that there is an existence beyond the mere material world, and that supernatural forces of evil and good really are at war with each other. That is something that we can't understand. You see, as Christians, we hold to a supernatural faith, a faith that transcends. We do believe in God. We believe in angelic and demonic forces. We believe in the existence of the soul, in miraculous works of healing, in salvation, in God's providence over our lives. We believe in eternal life and a coming kingdom that will never end, that will be nothing short of utopia, of paradise. Nothing bad ever. Nothing sad ever, as one of my son's books puts it. I love that. Nothing broken, no one hurting, No death, no pain, no sickness, no tears, no heartache, no worry, no fear, no anxiety, no depression, no loneliness. That feels unreal. That feels unnatural, doesn't it? Because it is unnatural. It's supernatural. The Christian faith holds to these supernatural truths. And Christians, we cling to them, don't we? It's why we love grand passages of Scripture like Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. It's not our text today, and I don't want you to actually turn there. So if you're turning there, it's okay if you turn there, but just listen. If If it helps you to close your eyes, you can do that, but just listen to the words of Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Unlimited, cosmos-creating, molecule-sustaining power, total universal authority, preeminence, deity, Christ's unquestionable sovereign lordship over all things, everything through him, everything for him, everything in him holding together. Without Christ, it all falls apart. Everything. Consider how astounding that claim is. That if Christ ceased to hold us together in this moment, we simply wouldn't be. That's how sovereign his lordship. It's supernatural, it's astounding, it's breathtaking, and it's all true. Infinitely more true and real than the force or the Jedi. And yet the Christian faith is also equally an incarnational faith, an embodied faith. It's not the opium of the masses designed to soothe real pains with kind of false hopes or wishful thinking. It's a faith that engages in, that redeems the natural order. It brings real hope. It brings real transformation. It brings real life and love and joy and peace and a thousand other blessings. It makes the impossible possible. It is the inbreaking of the supernatural to the natural. So I'll say today, if the word theology makes your eyes gloss over, I want to say to you that it need not be so. Because thinking and speaking of God is not the same as armchair philosophy. It's, it's to think and speak and hear God's thoughts after him. It's to walk on the path of life and light and real, lasting joy. And it's very much down to earth. It's why we have passages of scripture like Colossians 3, 18, 4 through 6, which we're going to read in a moment, which outline practical rules for Christian households and give practical instructions for prayer and living wisely before unbelievers. It all seems mundane almost, unspiritual to talk about how families ought to live together. How servants and masters ought to relate to one another. But God in his sovereign goodness has designed his heavenly truths to be lived out in earthbound lives until the day that heaven will come down to earth fully and finally. So you see, if we believe the claims of Christianity to be true, the claims of Colossians 1 to be true, as crazy as it sounds that all things were created through Christ and for Christ and that Christ is before all things and in him all things hold together, if that's true, it makes a world of difference for us and it ought to make all the difference in our world. It's not a mumbo-jumbo magical power that holds 
all things together. It's not the impersonal force of Star Wars. It is Jesus Christ, the preeminent yet incarnate God-man who steps into our world to redeem it and renew it and renew you and renew me. And that faith ought to make a difference in us, in our everyday lives, and that's what this sermon is about. It's about how the supernatural claims of the gospel impact the practical, natural, even mundane stuff of life. That's why I have a picture of a trash bag waiting to go out. I love this picture. I was like, I wanted to find an image that is the most unimpressive, mundane, and maybe even like, oh, like on Father's Day, like it's a reminder of what awaits you when you go home, fathers. Um, this is the everyday stuff of life. Happy Father's Day. Take out the trash. Um, right. Um, so this is, but this is what the sermon is about, right? Our lives are lived in these moments. This is, this is our lives. This is the natural stuff of our lives, the small stuff. Our lives are lived in hundreds of thousands of, of little things, not always big life-altering decisions. Um, sometimes it's just like choosing what to eat for, for dinner or what to do on the weekend, how late you stay up, how early you rise, how to speak to your husband, how to pay attention to your wife and her needs, obeying your parents, taking out the trash, doing the dishes, sweeping the floors, your attitude at work the way you treat those under your authority, the way you speak, the way you use your free time, social media, TV, whatever, the way you pray. All of these things seem mundane, and all of them are radically impacted by our passage today. So turn with me uh, to Colossians 3, starting in verse 18, but we're going to back up to 17 to read in just a moment. The summary sentence for today is going to be on the screen. A Christian's everyday life should be radically reoriented, radically reoriented around their relationship to Christ. So in our passage today, we're going to see four ways that living under the lordship of Christ radically reorients everyday actions and especially our relationships with others. So Colossians 3 Verses 18 through 4, 6, and I'm actually going to back up to, um, to verse 17 to start reading here. Verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. 
Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is God's word. A quick note about the book of Colossians, written by Paul to believers in Colossae, a church likely planted by Epaphras, mostly made up of people with a non-Jewish background, Gentile background. And these believers were wrestling with false teaching that sought to make certain practices or experiences essential to the Christian faith and practice. Like, to be a real Christian, you need to do this specific thing. X, Y, Z. That's real Christianity. And Paul writes to the Colossians to encourage them, Christ is enough. Christ is the one who holds all things together, who brings us from death to life, from the old ways of sin to a new way of life that is pleasing to God. This new spiritual life is attained through gladly believing the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That's how you're raised to life. It's not about finding the right personality sorter and like figuring out your personality just, just right. It's not about doing whatever particular way you raise your kids or teach them. Or Those things don't save. Those things don't make you a better Christian. Um, there might be good things. I'm not saying that all of those things are wrong. Christ is enough. You need Christ. Not, the, not all the stuff, the traditions, the human traditions. You need Christ. So the, the encouragement, the warning that is since life is found in Christ, since in Christ all things hold together, you need to stick with him. You need to stick with Jesus. You stay stable and steadfast and unwavering in the faith. That's the message of the book of Colossians, on, kind of on the whole. But what's amazing is that there absolutely is an oughtness to the Christian's new life in, in Christ without adding anything to the gospel, without diminishing the righteousness of Jesus and his atonement on the cross. There are real life implications for living as Christ's people under the lordship of Jesus. And we see that most clearly in this passage. So here's what I want to draw your attention to first. I want to draw your attention to the number of times the word Lord appears in this passage. First, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you how many times it appears in the rest of the book, and then we're going to look at the times it occurs here. So this is a summary of Colossians. Here we go. Here's the seven times apart from this passage where the word Lord occurs. I'm just going to, it'll be quick. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Number three, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Number four, as, Christ ha- as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Number five, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Number six, Tychicus, a fellow servant in the Lord. And number seven, a message to Archippus. Fulfill the ministry you have received in the Lord. So seven times, apart from this little section, that it occurs. That's the whole book of Colossians, spanning 95 verses minus these uh, occurrences found here. Contrast that to another seven found in just eight verses here. Seven, Seven lords, eight verses. 17 through 24, if you look there. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus right? Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Obey your parents in everything, for this 
pleases the Lord. Verse 20. Servants, obeying in everything, fearing the Lord. Verse 22. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. Verse 23. Verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance. You are serving the Lord Christ. And then one more, actually. Um, if you look at verse uh, chapter 4, verse 1. It's not, it's probably, it may be not translated Lord in your, in your text, but the Greek word for master in heaven, you have a master in heaven, is kyrios, it's Lord. So there's actually another one, if you count that one. So that would actually be, what, eight in, eight ver- in, in these verses. A little bit more verses than eight. But. That's astounding. Half of the times that Paul uses the word Lord in Colossians, more than half, are in the context of these very practical instructions for Christians in the everyday stuff of life. Especially the everyday stuff of life lived out in relationship with other people. So what what does this mean? It means that the lordship of Christ has everything to do with your marriage, has everything to do with your parenting, has everything to do with your job. It's an all-inclusive lordship. And there's four specific ways that we see this worked out. So the first one is this. It's up on this. It'll be up on the screen. First one is Christians should submit to authority with the right attitude. And we see this in, in particularly a couple places in the family and in, we're going to say on the job. And I'll, I'll just preface this by saying all the language about masters and servants. Um, I've said there's an oughtness to the Christian life. Not everything in the Bible is, is also an oughtness. In other words, the the idea of the masters and, and serv- servants and, and sl- or slaves and master relationships, it doesn't mean that the Bible's endorsing slavery. It doesn't mean that they're... But it, it is the everyday stuff of these people's lives, right? It, it just existed here. And so Paul is saying, that I, I've got to respond to what is real, what is really happening in your lives. So not an endorsement, and I think we'll find some, some practicality to thinking about this Again, master, servant, okay, I, I know it's a little bit of a stretch, but not too far to say that when, when you're on your job, you have someone in authority over you, and we can apply that in, this, in a similar way, okay? So it's just a note. So first, in the family, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting the Lord. Fathers are like, yeah, hoorah, let's go. It's Father's Day. Uh, we're getting to you in a minute, so uh, you, just, you just hang on. <laughs> and first, I want to I really, really press into this. Submit, that word submit, this does not mean anything about lessened equality, right? It says nothing about this. Submit means to place or arrange under. The the English gloss means something like accept or yield to a superior force or to the authority or will of another person, superior force. That's not helpful. That's not what's what's here in the original language, so in, in English, that submit tends to make us feel like we're, we're submitting to a superior person, right? That someone who is better, more worth, more value, more significance. That's not in the Bible. That's uh, just maybe a, maybe a common misunderstanding of that. And let me explain to you why I know this. Um, not because I'm super smart, but uh, because in Luke 2, Jesus is submissive to Joseph and Mary. Let that sink in. God in the person of Jesus, in his human nature, obeyed his parents. Does that make him less equal with them? He's human. He's got a human nature, yes. 
He's also God, and he listened to his parents. Let that sink in, that Jesus submitted in everything to his parents, to Joseph and Mary. So wives, listen, you you do not submit to husbands as a superior force, but you do submit yourself appropriately to the God-given authority of your husbands. And by the way, those husbands are instructed to exercise authority in a very particular way towards their wives. We're going to look at that in a moment. But first, I want to say, notice how countercultural it is to say that wives ought to submit to their husbands. I mean, like some of us, it's just like, it makes you tense even to talk about it. This is the kind of radical life reorientation that Christians are called to. It's very much not of this world. And please remember, this very practical instruction is the oughtness brought about by the gospel of Jesus. It's not that wives earn their place with God by obeying their husbands. Rather, it's the appropriate way for wives who know and are captivated by the gospel of Jesus. That's the appropriate way we we ought to live in, in a marriage relationship. And again, we're going to get to husbands in a moment. Now, I, I don't want to, I want to stress this too much, but I want you to think about the everyday stuff of your marriage. Wives, think about how, what does it mean? What does it look like for me to submit to my husband as is fitting in the Lord with the Lordship of Christ, the authority, the God-given authority that my husband has to lead our home? How do I submit to that joyfully? as if to the Lord. Not to anything that is abusive or harsh, or, or we're going we're to look at that. But just think about very practically what that looks like in your life. And secondly, children are, are called to obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Okay, the, the father's like, yeah, here we go again. Um, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. It's fitting for wives Right, Fitting in the Lord for wives to submit to husbands. It's pleasing to the Lord for parents to be obeyed by their children. So children, I, I work with youth. Um, I, I actually preached something of this passage on our winter camp back in, in uh, February. And I told them, I said, you need to understand that when your parents ask you to take out the trash or to do the dishes or to help with laundry, tell yourself this. I'm doing this because it pleases not my father or my mother, but because it pleases the Lord. That's the kind of radical reorientation. Do you see that? It's one thing to just, I just make mom and dad happy. It's another thing to say, I want to make the Lord happy by listening to my parents. Children, obey your parents. This pleases the Lord. The Lordship of Christ means you don't please your parents. Ultimately, you please the Lord when you obey them. And again, we've already talked about the master-servant relationship, but we'll, we'll apply this to a job situation. As servants are called to obey their earthly masters with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, fearing the Lord. Don't fear your boss, fear the Lord. And the work that you do, listen to this. Work heartily with heart, with conviction, with strength, as for the Lord and not for men. Now, that's interesting that he he says not just work as if for the Lord, but not for men. Serve 
on the job as if Christ himself is the one you answer to. Do you see how radically reorienting that is to our lives? How might that change our attitude in the workplace? And you need to remember, too, where where we'll, we'll go here is that this doesn't even assume that your boss is being the kind of boss that is pleasing to the Lord. Please the Lord, don't please the boss. And here's the reason why. Whatever you do, work heartily. Work as for the Lord, not for men, knowing. Here's the encouragement. Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Your paycheck is one thing, but an eternal inheritance kept for you, unspoiled in heaven, folks, that's worth more than every paycheck you've ever earned. That inheritance is plenty of motivation for you to work heartily as to the Lord. It's better than your retirement. It's better than all of your benefits. It's, it's everything. And then he says one more time, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done, and there is no partiality. Now, that's, that's important for two reasons, right? If you're serving a bad boss, a boss who exercises his authority inappropriately, um, he's going to get what's coming to him one day. But also for you, if you do not serve as to the Lord, if you're cutting corners at work, if you're maybe skimming a little off the top, the Lord will pay back. Any wrongdoer, there's no partiality. All right, so that's the job in the family, the submission to authority with the right attitude, remembering who you're serving, who you're obeying, who you're submitting to. It's not, it's not merely your husband, it's not merely your boss or your parents, it's the Lord. All right, so that's the first one. Second one is Christians should exercise authority in fairness and love. And husbands, I told you I'd come around to you. This is, this is your time. In the family, husbands, you're supposed to what? Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Guys, this is, this is what separates, this is what I told the, the students at winter camp. This is what separates the boys from the men. Any guy can feel emotionally, physically attracted to a girl. Any man can feel that way toward a woman. You can buy her nice things. You can, you can pop the question. You can put a ring on her finger. You can buy her the house that she always wanted. You can take her on the vacation that she always wanted to go on. But to really love her, to cherish her more than the money, more than the cars, more than the house, more than the vacation... more than everything else, more than your own life. That's what a real, authentic man does. That's what a husband is called to do as as a Christ follower, is to love your wives. And it doesn't say as Christ loved the church, but we know that that's also in in the context. We've, We've heard that before, right? I think Ephesians. Loving your wives to the point of sacrifice, to pour yourself out, 
self-sacrificially for your wives. That's the kind of love that we're called to husbands. Second command is often translated as don't be harsh, uh, but the original word conveys something a, a little bit more like don't be bitter. I think it's a better rendering of the word. The same word is used in Revelation is contrasted with sweetness. Harsh and sweet. I, you can kind of get there with the same word, but it certainly includes not being harsh, acting or speaking in ways that are rough or cruel, but it also inc- includes this inner dimension of not feeling resentment, not holding a grudge against someone. That's important. You see, it's, it's possible to harbor resentment in your heart and never say a single hurtful word to your spouse. We know this, right? You know this. If you're married, you know what this is like. But more than avoiding harshness or bitterness, the opposite ought to also be true. Don't be harsh. Like, the opposite should be, be sweet. Like, I know that sounds, be sweet to your wives. Like, this is really novel advice or something. But what does it look like to lovingly, understandly, understandingly, sacrificially, and sweetly love your wives. To be pleasant to your wives. Guys, this is just a struggle. I struggle with it myself. I understand. But we are called by the gospel, by Christ's lordship, to live in this way toward our wives. Fathers, parents, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. This is the second way that Christians exercise authority in fairness and in love. The first one was more on the love part. This is more maybe on the fairness part. So he says something very interesting. Do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, I, I didn't know how, this, how you get there from pro- provoking to discourage. I thought provoking, like, what do you think? Like provoke anger. Like that's how I kind of... Like you're poking somebody and they get angry. How do you poke someone in a way that makes them discouraged? Children are to be raised in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. They're to be trained, corrected, rebuked, and wrongdoing, but they're not to be berated. They're not to be crushed by expectations that exceed their capacity or otherwise discouraged or dispirited by overly harsh words of challenge. Hey, come on. Do something with your life. What are you doing? That kind of language is not appropriate for Christian parents to use with their children. To, to whip a horse into action and the horse is tired and the horse does not have anything left to give. It's just discouraged. There's no point in beating the horse. Beating a tired out horse will often do more harm than good. And so that is what Christian parenting looks like. We ought to stir up our children, right? We ought to lead them. We ought to raise them in that knowledge of the Lord. We ought to discipline our children. And this is particularly true for fathers, also true for mothers. But how do we do this in a way that avoids discouraging our children? That's what it means to think about reorienting our relationships, our lives around the Lordship of Christ. And the same thing, this fairness aspect, comes in with masters who are commanded to be fair and just. So verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. 
Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master, a Lord, in heaven. You see, holding a position of authority is a privilege. Christians of all, of all people ought to exercise authority in fairness and love following the example of Christ. You want to talk about authority? Jesus, the one who holds the universe together? The one who created all things? for whom all things exist. He's got a right to, to say whatever he wants. Like, hey, let's, let's go. But that same Jesus, who is God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, If you have a position of authority, maybe at work, you need to know that you have a master in heaven. That's what this verse says. No, treat them justly and fairly. Why? Or what's the encouragement? Knowing that you have a master in heaven. How do you want to be treated by your master in heaven? Thankfully, God is just. God is, can do no other. But let me tell you, he also pays back the wrongdoers. We just saw that. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. We live, we work as accountable to the master in heaven. So if you have authority, if you have a position, a privileged position to tell other people what to do, especially, you ought to exercise that authority in fairness and love, whether you're a husband Right, who's leading your family, whether you're a manager at your work um, or even upper-level senior leadership, how do you treat others underneath you? Know that you are underneath the Lord Christ. Okay, so third, Christians should steadfastly pray for themselves and others. I love this part of the, the text so we're talking about verses 2 forward in chapter 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Being watchful in it with thanksgiving. What are we watching for? Commentators, may, there's, there's a couple things here. First, we've got to be on guard against Satan, against the flesh, against temptations from every side. And secondly, we're on watch because we're expecting the king to come. We're expecting Christ. So we need to be ready, folks. So as we pray, we are called to this every day. What does it mean to continue steadfastly in prayer? I, I have to admit, I, I know I can do better. To steadfastly pray and to continue in prayer, being on guard against Satan, being ready for the Lord Christ to return. Think of Matthew 26, right? Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation and being thankful. I love the fact that Thanksgiving is a central theme in the book of Colossians. But Thanksgiving ought to be part of our prayer. 
being thankful, being watchful against the temptation toward ungratefulness, toward grumbling and toward complaining like the Israelites in the wilderness. God help us for forgetting the power of prayer and for neglecting the responsibility and privilege of prayer. It would do us well to remember the words of that old hymn. Do you guys remember this? What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have you trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? You should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can you find a friend so faithful who will all your sorrows share? Jesus knows your every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are you weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still your refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do your friends despise, forsake you? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield you. You will find a solace there. Blessed Savior, thou hast promised thou will all our burdens bear. May we ever, Lord, be bringing all to thee in earnest prayer. You hear that, that language there? Be, continue steadfastly in prayer. May we ever, Lord, be bringing all to thee in earnest prayer. John Calvin called prayer the chief exercise of our faith. And it's really amazing when you reflect on it, isn't it? I tell the students, our high school students this all the time. God knows your need before you ask. It's interesting. We always bring these laundry lists of things to God. Like, I, I need to make you aware of the things that need to get done, Jesus. No. Folks, God knows your need. He doesn't need your prayers. So why do you pray? To align your heart with the heart of God. To increase your faith in God who answers prayers. Who delights to hear our prayers. Folks, continue steadfastly in prayer. This is part of what it means to be a Christian is to live our lives with a supernatural frame of view. All this is real. There really is a God in heaven, a Father in heaven who delights to hear you and who delights to see his people ask. Ask and you will receive. And that doesn't mean everything. It's not a blank check. You don't just get to pray and receive anything. That's right. You know, because we've prayed those prayers. Maybe like Paul, who the thorn in the flesh isn't removed. But you know what? God's grace is sufficient for him. And he still asks for the thorn to be removed. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And pray for others. This is important here, and, and I love this. I almost asked you to do this at the beginning Uh, I love where he says, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word that I may make it clear. Like, 
And, and please, do pray for us on ICI that we would have opportunities uh, for the word of God and that we would make it clear, right? Because a lot of these children that we're going to be working with are unchurched children uh, from a Latin American, Mexican Latin American background. So there's, there's some language barriers. Um, there's definitely culture barriers. And please pray for, for us, for our team, as we've already, we've already done this this morning, but continue this this week. I'm, I'm just asking you to continue to pray for our team um, and that we would make clear the good news of Jesus that we're going to, um, to serve and, uh, and to tell. So pray for others. Um, pray for your leaders. Pray for your pastors, right? Pray for our elders and our servant board um, and pray for our missionaries that we support. Um, this is part of what it means to be a Christian is to, to remember others' needs um, and lift them up to the Lord in prayer. Um, earnestly, continuously, steadfast, being watchful, being thankful. And finally, uh, fourth, Christians should live wisely before unbelievers. We see this here where it says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how to answer each person. Now, I, I'm, I'm guilty here as all the other things, right? Wasting time, wasting opportunities. I frequently fail to make the most of each opportunity for the gospel, but your past failures are not reasons. They're not good excuses to forsake future opportunities. God's grace will cover your failures, and God's grace can empower you to successfully bear witness to Christ in the future. So, Folks, let's, let's live wisely in this world before unbelievers. On your job, um, when you're getting pumping gas in the gas station and you're thinking about how expensive it is and how it's going to hurt, watch your words. Watch your words. <laughs> Ambassadors for Christ, that's what we are. So we live before the world in ways that honors the lordship of Christ. If the Lord Christ were pumping gas at Casey's, <laughs> just imagine that. How would he pump gas? Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for this, for this gasoline that enables me to, to, I mean, seriously, like, I imagine that Jesus would be thanking God for the, just the fact that he has a vehicle. How ungrateful are we? How ungrateful? I, I'm speaking for myself here. I'm not necessarily indicting you, but how ungrateful are we to complain when God has given us everything. We need to live wisely, folks. We represent Jesus in this world. So when you talk about politics, when you talk about the gas prices, when you talk about inflation, I know it hurts. What hurts worse is when Christ sees his people who bear his name acting like everybody else. Be holy, for I am holy. You're not going to be perfectly like Jesus. I get that. But we talked about, even in Romans, the, the conform to the image of his son. That's God's purpose for you. So we want to live wisely. We want to make the most of every opportunity, right? Distraction is, is a tool of the enemy. Smartphones, social media, emails, there's endless distractions for our modern lives. May God help us guard our attention and our affection, our heart. May we not... Miss out on moments of eternal significance because of these inconsequential distractions. I've already said this, but choosing our words well. Um, Jesus says, out of, the how, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
So I want to say this is heart work, not just like lip service, right? We're not just saying the things that make people, you, you know what I mean? We're not just saying the, the nice things. We're also meaning them. We're asking God to change our hearts, that the Lordship of Christ would work here and that that would come out here. Christians should live all of these ways, right? All the things that we've talked about, submitting to authority with the right attitude, exercising authority in in fairness and in love. Um, Christians should certainly pray for themselves and others, and and they should live wisely before an unbelieving world because Christ himself lived this way. Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled all of these shoulds, even and especially where we fail to live as we ought. Jesus submitted to authority. He submitted to his human parents. He submitted his human will to the Father's will in the Garden of Gethsemane, facing death on a cross. Jesus exercised authority and love. He used his power to heal, to free, to raise the dead, having all authority to call on the heavenly hosts. Jesus the Lord went like a lamb to the slaughter silently and seemingly powerlessly. Meekness, humility, ultimate, enduring love. Jesus taught his disciples to use their authority to love and not to lord over as others do, as the Gentiles do. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He modeled both thanksgiving and watchfulness in the Lord's prayer. He modeled for them intercession. He even now lives to make intercession for you and for me at the right hand of the Father. He is steadfast in his commitment to this and he expects his followers to pray. And Jesus lived wisely before unbelievers, making the best use of his time on earth, speaking words of life and healing and truth at all times. When he's at the well, getting water, that's a divinely appointed thing, I know, but my goodness, may we look for those opportunities. He spoke truthful words of rebuke. Jesus wasn't afraid to speak the truth, but he did speak wisely speaking gracious words, seasoned with salt. What does that mean, seasoned with salt? Like tasty words. May our words be winsome and wholesome. And may they make other people want what we have, right? We need to speak a different way. Each of these areas present unique challenges to us. Wives, you may struggle to submit to your husband's God-given authority over the home. Maybe, I don't know, I don't don't know your context, but husbands, you might struggle to cherish your wives and act pleasantly toward them. Children, you might struggle with rebellion or inattentiveness or laziness or a mixture of all three, um, which lead you not to listen to your parents, right? Employees, you might slack on the job or cut corners. Employers, you may drive your employees too hard. They are human beings, They're not machines. Christians, young and old, you may well forget to pray for those who minister to you, who serve in foreign or home-based missions. You may waste your time. You may pray too little. You may play too much. You might joke inappropriately or speak foolishly in front of unbelievers, but these things ought not to be because Christ is Lord. If you bear the name of Christ, you are his representative to a lost and dying world that is without hope, so we need to live wisely in this lost world. 
We need to live as people of light. Wives, live as wives of the great bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Husbands, love and cherish your wives as you desire the Lord to love and cherish you. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. This pleases him. Employers, employees, treat each other with dignity, fairness, respect, and work hard for the one who is Lord of all, employer and employees alike. You see, monarchs and heads of state have no authority equal to the preeminent Son of God. Parents and spouses have no love equal to the love of Christ. Think about that. Think about how much you love your spouse or how much you love your children. Matchless love. Infinitely greater love that God has. Christ, who willingly went to the cross to rescue his sworn enemies. Christ is Lord. He is supreme. He is worthy of our praise, worthy of our work, worthy of your humility, your obedience, worthy to reorient your entire lives, worthy to reshape and reform your relationships to others. Christ is worthy, and he has the power to transform and bring new life. If you want the kind of radically reoriented life that Jesus calls his followers to, there's wonderful news. Ask and you will receive. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. He will give you himself, his life, his righteousness, and he'll give you his spirit to make you new. He will fashion you in his image. You don't need to work harder. You only trust the Lord Christ and ask of the Lord Christ. He holds all things together. Can he not hold you together? Is he powerless to give what he desires? No. He will sanctify and purify his bride. He will have her as his own. He will have you as his own. So live today as if Christ is Lord forever because it's true. All of it, it's true. He is Lord. He is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever, he was Lord, he is Lord, he will always be Lord. That's how we ought to live, church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would reorient our lives. Father, come and redeem our marriages. Redeem our parenting. Redeem our relationship with, with work and those who work under us and those who are above us. Lord, we want to be people who live wisely and speak wisely and speak words of life and healing of love. We want to be fair and just in the ways that we exercise authority. We want to submit willingly, joyfully to those in authority over us. We need to pray, Lord, being watchful with thanksgiving. All of these things you call us to because Jesus did them and calls us to, hit, to this life. He's preeminent. Father, thank you for sending your son to reign supremely. We wait, we watch for the day when one day he will come and make all things fully and forever new. We pray all of this in the name of Christ, who is our Lord. Amen. Let's stand as we